As we journey into a new year, I'd like to have us look at a passage that for some of us will be very familiar. For others of us, it may be a, a passage that you are not acquainted with. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke, the seventh chapter. We're going to be looking at verses 36 through 50. Luke, the seventh chapter. My subtitle for this paragraph in my Bible reads, Jesus anointed by a sinful woman. So follow along on the screen or in your own Bibles as we start to read, as I read Luke 7, starting at verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man was a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, master, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You judge correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house, and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she, per she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. She has loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests said among themselves, Who is that that even forgives sin? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, to fully understand this passage, you must understand some of the customs or the etiquette of the day. There were certain etiquette rules that governed the responsibilities of the host, as well as the guests coming to a meal, just as there would be certain etiquette rules that would apply to you if you were invited to Pastor Steve and Jen's house for a formal dinner. And so we're going to open this 2013 with a series of four questions on etiquette. So you might take your bulletin and write one, two, three, four, and I'm going to ask you to answer four questions on etiquette today. Now, they come from Emily Post, who wrote these in the 20s. They may be a little bit dated, but they still have application. And if you go to Pastor Steve and Jen's home, you'll be well served by knowing the answers to these questions. So question number one, if you are 15 minutes late for a formal dinner at Pastor Steve's home, what do you do? A, explain that you're being late is no big deal. You're always late for church also. <laughs> B, expect to eat in the kitchen surrounded by Steve's office staff 
and plan on joining the rest of the party once everyone else has been served and has eaten. C, explain that you were late because you were detained in the restroom. D, explain that you were talking to Pastor Dan at McDonald's, and Dan spotted his son's coach, and you wanted to hear the end of the story. Well, the correct answer is B. However, some of you, I think A would apply, and uh, some of you, D might even apply. Okay, question number two. When you are at a formal dinner and food is served, when should you start eating? A, when the person to your left starts to eat. B, when the hostess lifts her fork and takes a bite. C, after the majority of the people at your table have been served. Or D, as soon as you can so you can get seconds. The answer, surprisingly for some of you, is C. Emily Post says you ought to eat the food when it's hot and you ought not to put undue pressure on the hostess to eat immediately. Okay, question three. If food is presented to you and you do not like it, now this wouldn't apply to Pastor Steve's house, but and you don't like it, what do you do? A, eat a small amount of it or at least cut it up and move it around your plate. B, cut it up and hope that Pastor Steve's dog is under the table and you can sneak the food to him. C, eat it anyways, drink lots of water and smile a lot. Or D, tactfully spill water on your plate. Now the answer is A, surprisingly, eat a small portion of it and cut it up into small chunks what you don't like and maybe make a design on your plate. Okay, one final question. How many of you have all three of those right thus far? Let me see your hand. Any, anyone? Oh my goodness, no one has them. Okay. Okay, one final question. If your cell phone rings during a sermon at Black Rock, what should you do? Now, this obviously is not from Emily Post, but Pastor Steve asked me if I put this question in here. A, look at the person next to you and shake your head. B, immediately answer the phone and mumble something like, oh, you need me in a nursery with my kids? I'll be right there. C, pretend that it's Ken Bricks and say, oh, yes, Ken, I will increase my lighthouse gift for 2013. Or D, provide a meal to the preaching pastor immediately after the sermon. Now, of course, the answer is D, right? Although some of you may be... C wouldn't be a bad choice. Every culture has certain patterns, certain customs, certain etiquette rules that apply to the guest and the host at a meal. These patterns may be unwritten. They may be somewhat dated as Emily Post's rules might be, but still there are certain patterns and the customs that are part and parcel of the way we are to treat people. For example, if you meet someone new, what's the first thing you do? Usually, you reach out your right hand and you shake their hand. Now, when I was with the Tomachek people, with one of our missionaries, Bruce Walton, in Niger, you would shake the man's right hand with your right hand, but then you take your left hand and you place it on your chest. And the reason you did that, that was to show the person that you're greeting that you did not have a weapon in either hand. And so as we come to this passage... In order to understand what's going on here, we have to understand the context of the customs, the etiquette of the day. Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's home. His name is Simon. Now, this is not the apostle, not Simon 
that is one of the apostles, nor is he Simon the leper that we find in Mark the 14th chapter. But he's an esteemed man in the community. He's a man of stature. Many have come, have, had come to believe in this. Jesus is visiting rabbi. He had his a following, a group of people that were disciples of this man. Matter of fact, in Nain, in the chapter before this, Jesus had done some miraculous thing. He had, she, he had actually raised a child from the dead. A Gentile centurion that was esteemed by the community, but still one of those hated oppressors, had had one of the, his servants healed by Jesus. And so Jesus had a following. He was a person who had some stature. But there were a group of people who were totally against Jesus. These were radicals, if you would say, in the community. Although they weren't that radical, they were just religious zealots. We call them Pharisees. And Simon was one of these Pharisees. And he determined this was his opportunity to bring this Jesus into his home. So he invited Jesus to come, but undoubtedly he also invited other Pharisees to join him. And they would have the opportunity to question Jesus because they did not believe him. But every invitation had certain cultural rules, certain customs that were applicable to that situation. For at the very least, this, this Jesus, he was a rabbi. And he had a following. And it was said that this Jesus, when he was 12 or 13, was actually in the temple in Jerusalem. And that religious people had come to him and he had questioned them. And he knew the scripture and he often quoted from it. The time of Jesus. It was the custom that if a rabbi came into a person's home, even if the person did not know him very well, it was the host's responsibility to kiss him on the cheek. But if the rabbi was an esteemed person or held in high regard by the host, he was to kiss his right hand. To neglect such a thing would be similar to Pastor Steve inviting you to his home and Steve not being willing to shake your hand when you come in. Or nod, at least. Give, him, give that token that he appreciated that you were there. Remember in verse 36, Jesus had been invited to the home. It was not an event that took place in the marketplace. It takes place in the home of a Pharisee. So Jesus is invited to the home. And as was the custom of the day, they reclined at the table, the place they were going to eat. Now, although we love Leonardo da Vinci's code, uh, painting of the Last Supper, where they're sitting around chairs. That was not the way it took place in the ancient world. They often reclined, and there was a raised platform where the food was served. And so the second slight takes place. That involves, of course, the washing of the feet of the guests. If you've been overseas any time in what we call the developing world where roads are not paved, or there's no paved sidewalks, you'll understand how dirty and you will remember how dirty your feet would get very quickly and if it started to rain your feet would get muddy and therefore it was the responsibility of the host it was common etiquette 
that if the host actually knew the person, then he would go and wash the feet of the person coming as his guest. Or at the very least, he'd put a basin of water out and the person could wash his own feet. But none of this takes place. And then there's a third thing that happens, a third slight that takes place. He does not anoint the head of the guest. Often this was the case that the host was on, would anoint the head of the guest and give him the ironic blessing. But none of these things take place. No greeting for Jesus. No washing of his feet. No anointing of his head. And the first century person watching what's going on here understands the message being sent. Simon is saying very clearly to the guests, and to all those people standing around watching what's going on, his belief that this Jesus is a fake, a phony, a nobody. This story is pregnant with cultural tension, with etiquette tension. Now verse 37 introduces a third person. You have Simon and you have Jesus. And now there's a third person. Usually in the ancient world of where Jesus walked, often there was a courtyard. And so people outside could watch what's going on on the inside. And maybe if the person, the guest was a distinguished person, they could catch some of the things being said. Verse 37 literally says, as he introduces this third person, verse 37 in the original Greek says, and look! A woman who lived a sinful life. Luke says, look, into this situation comes this sinful woman. Now, most commentators would agree that Luke, as a physician, uses very guarded words here. He calls the woman a sinful woman. Most scholars would agree that this is a euphemistic way of saying that the woman was a prostitute. And notice verse 37 says that the woman lived in that neighborhood. She lived in that town. She was a known quantity. The people knew her. They knew how she put food on her table. Don't sanitize this story. She is the trash of the society. She's rejected. You ever been in one of those situations when not only were you not invited to the party, but you realized that you were the rejected person? I can remember a situation that happened to me 40 years ago. And I can recall every, deal, every detail of that situation. I was an 11 or 12-year-old boy, adolescent. I grew up in Milford, only, what, 15 miles from here up the coast. I grew up near the water. I had a great dream of one day having a boat. But the economics of our family would not allow that, and it was only a dream. But there was a guy in our church who had a boat. 
In my recollection at that time, it was a 40, 40, 45, 50 footer. I've since come to realize it was probably a lot smaller than that. And this person who had the boat in my church was an elder. And I can well remember that moment. I can almost taste what was going on in my very mouth at that moment when he came up to us, three of us, Don, the pastor's son, Ken, my best friend, and me. And as we were standing there after church, he came up to us and said, hey, would you guys like to go in my boat? Now, the other two guys, they weren't great lovers of the ocean like I was, but I was so excited. I said, I can't wait to do that. And I will never forget the moment when this elder turned to me and said, not you, Fullerton. You're too much of a troublemaker. And as an 11-year-old boy, I carried that with me for years. Not you, Fullerton. You're too much of a troublemaker. I was searching for my identity. I was searching for who I was. I was searching for respect, at least in the church. Not you, Fullerton. This rejected woman had lived in a periphery of the society. She was not invited to the party. She's not supposed to be there. She looks on the scenes. She knows what's going on. She's seen the messages sent by Simon. She starts to cry. She makes her way to the feet of Jesus. She violates a cultural the cultural etiquette of the day. Maybe she begins to wonder, how can I right the wrongs? I cannot kiss the head of this man. That might send a message because of my reputation that would not be true. She looks at the feet of Jesus and she thinks, she looks at those dirty feet. I can at least do that. In breaking off propriety, she kneels over those feet. Maybe a few tears have been running down her cheek, but soon the tear ducts open. And the feet of this Jesus, they are wet. She has learned to control her emotions, remember her occupation. But at this moment, those emotions of gratitude and love for this Jesus just overwhelm her. She starts to cry. Mine, my mind's eye at this moment as I envision that story, that, that little slice of what's going on in the life of Jesus, everything stops in that party. All the small talk, all the theological questions that the Pharisees were going to ask Jesus, all the hustle and bustle of the food preparation comes to a grinding halt. And every eye focuses on this woman at the feet of Jesus, and she's crying. And now a second breach of etiquette takes place. 
She takes down her hair and starts to wipe the feet of Jesus. The whole event is so spontaneous. She has no towel with her. She has no water with her. So she takes down her hair, and the people in that community would recognize this act. The Talmud that interprets the Old Testament for the modern Jew in the first century said that a woman could be divorced if she was ever found taking down her hair in the company of another man. She was doing something that the people in that community recognized that she had done before, but now the meaning, the meaning was completely different. Again, don't sanitize the story. What's going on here is remarkable. And then the third breach takes place. She has brought with her an alabaster jar of perfume, the NIV translates. Many translators, as you go back to the Greek, would say, what, what this really says is she brought with her a flask of alabaster. And I thought to myself, why did she bring a flask of alabaster? Where did she get that? And as I did some research into this, I found that one of the things the prostitutes carried with them at all times around their neck was a flask of perfume. And they used that in their occupation. And so what this woman is doing, she's taking that which is the most precious thing she owns, the thing necessary for her to fulfill her obligation to a man. And she's using that to anoint the feet of Jesus. She cannot anoint his head, but she can anoint his feet. First the tears, then the hair, then the anointing. And what's the response of Simon, verse 39, when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Simon says, see this Jesus really is a fake. For if he understood, if he really was a holy man, if he really was a prophet, he would stop this. But, but Jesus knows. Jesus knows. And so he turns to Simon. And he starts to tell him a story, verse 41. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. Money lenders were the financial sharks of that society. Money lending was not allowed strictly in the Old Testament. But still, money lenders had grown up in the society, and these were the, the mafia members, if you will, the, the very difficult people in that society. They took advantage of people. And these money lenders and the tax collectors were the two hated people in the society. And so Jesus says, there was this money lender. Two men, Jesus said, owed money to a money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Denarii was a, a Roman coin of the day. It was what we have found 
was given to a skilled worker for a day's labor. We know that a Roman soldier, a conscript into the army, was given half a denarii a day. So Jesus said there was a man who owed 50 denarii to a, to a moneylender, to a tough person. So he owed either 50 days of wages or maybe 100 days of wages. But there was also a man who owed 500 denarii. That's almost two years of labor to the moneylender. So Jesus asked, which of them is forgiven more? Jesus says, or Simon says, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. And Jesus said, you judge correctly. And he's done with Simon. He's done with Simon. Simon is left lying before his food. But he turns to the woman, Jesus does. And he says in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. Verse 50, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And the key to this little story that Jesus says to Simon is found in verse 42. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debt of both. Both men, the man who owned 50, maybe a small amount, and the man who owed 500 were equally insolvent to repay their debt. And that is what's so amazing about grace, that you and I are insolvent to pay the debt that we owe God. Maybe it's a small amount in your mind, or it's a huge amount. It makes no difference. You and I cannot pay the debt. How does Paul put it? For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not of works, so no one can boast. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This passage shouts to the first century reader the truth that Jesus is the only one who can pay the debt. And that same message is for us today. Let me read what Kent Hughes, a friend of mine, a pastor who spoke here at our men's retreat, wrote about this passage. And I have it up there on the screen. It's a little bit long passage. But listen to the words of Kent. What we all must understand is that the condition of being forgiven is to realize that we are broken and solvent, whether we are an accomplished moralist or an accomplished sinner. This is the problem. Keep people keep trying to persuade God to accept a currency of their own making. Some submit the currency of integrity. God, I work with compulsive liars. The only honest man I know is I. Surely I am acceptable. Others would argue that their domestic currency ought to make it. 
in this extroverted world, my life is a wholesome G. I'm faithful to my wife. I love my children. I'm a good husband, father, son. I reckon that's all I need. Social currency is a favorite, too. I am colorblind. My money, lots of it, goes to the needy. I volunteer at the Crisis Pregnancy Center. I really do care. The world needs more people like me. Goodness will surely be accepted. People, keep trying to persuade God to accept the currency of their own making. The story of this sinful woman is a story of her coming to understand that she could not pay the debt. She acted on her faith. And Jesus says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And the religious person, the person that might be sitting at Black Rock Congregational Church this day is left lying before his meal, unable to pay his debt. Friends, whether your debt is small or great, you and I cannot repay it to God. And it's God's mercy that has brought us together on this first Sunday in 2013. And it's up to you and up to me whether we, with gratitude, will accept the pardon that God offers. America this past year probably more than any other year since 9-11, has sung a song that we all know. The words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. What's so amazing about God's grace is that it applies to all sinners Sinners like you and me, I can't pay the debt, but God's grace paid for on the cross pays my debt. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace.